right? So overwork yourself as quickly as possible. Don't try to pace yourself. Don't try to structure your time. Go crazy so that you can figure out what your limits are. Maybe you don't work a 40 hour work week. Maybe you work a 60 hour work week and you love it. Or maybe like your life only supports 25 hours of work per week and you've got to get really efficient at that. So go crazy, then figure out what your limits are and then build a schedule around that, understanding that every, you know, three to six months, you're going to change and grow and you're going to keep, you're going to keep hitting new limits. We are not telling you to quit your job. Here at Out The Clock, the Healthcare Entrepreneurs Podcast, we are teaching you exactly how to gain your freedom as a healthcare professional in places that school never taught you. This is OTC University and class is in session. Welcome to another edition of Off the Clock, the Healthcare Entrepreneurs Podcast. As always, I am the captivating, motivating, scintillating, money-making Mr. Carborn Jr. And I'm joined by my main man, Mr. Paulo Ching. Paul, say what's up to the people. What up, y'all? I'm Paul. So <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> so without further ado, man, you guys know we love to bring you special guests. Very excited about today's guest. And uh, I should tell you that reading one of your books really helped me be able to stand out as a, uh, a physical therapy applicant to get into school. Uh, so just really uh, humbled to have you here. But guys, today we have a successful blogger, speaker, uh, five-time best-selling author of books such as You Are a Writer, Wrecked, uh, The In-Between, The Art of Work, and Real Artists Don't Starve. So we also have a founder of the Tribe Writers, which is an online community for writers. Without further ado, I want to go ahead and introduce our guest for today, Jeff Goins. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us, man. How are you feeling? Thank you, Carl. I'm feeling great. Good to be with you and Paul. Happy to be on the clock, off the clock. <laughs> much appreciated, man. So, Jeff, we like to be respectful of your time. With that being said, we always like to start with why, because I think that's always important. So, just right off the back, tell us, why did you even choose to pursue the field of, of writing? Well, um, I've heard it said that uh, certain vocations you don't choose, they choose you. Uh, it was probably a mix of that, you know? Um, I always liked writing. Uh, I liked it because it was easy and fun for me. Um, and I decided... Uh, in my late 20s, I was working for a nonprofit as a marketing director, and I was helping other people's stories succeed in the world. I thought maybe I could do this for myself. So it started out as a curiosity. It didn't start out as a thing that I thought I could do, that I uh, felt like I deserved to do. It just kind of felt like something I'd like to try. And, um, and so I, I did it because I would have regretted not trying more than failure. And I, I think that's that's sort of the formula for trying anything is will, because you could always fail, like you can fail, that is a possibility, right? You know, people say failure is not an, an option. Uh, of course it is, you know, failure is an inevitability, it's going to happen. We're gonna fail at things that we try. 
but I think something is worth trying, at least for me, when the cost of failure is less than the cost of regret, meaning I would rather attempt this and fail than not attempt it and miss out on trying. And, and that's how I began to feel about writing. Like, I'm going to regret not trying this. I've got to go for it. And, and so I, I started this blog and started writing on it every day and eventually led to me being able to make some money writing books and then teaching online courses for other writers. Um, and then I had this opportunity within about 12 months of, of starting this little side hustle where I could quit my job and go all in on it or not. And I didn't know if it was going to work or not, but I thought it could work. And I was excited about the possibility of it working. And I also knew I could always go back and do what I was doing before, you know, like I could find a way to go get a job and make 30 grand a year again. Like it wasn't like the hardest thing in the world to reproduce. And so it didn't feel like some big risk. And, and I was going to regret not trying. I love that. Um, you just mentioned that you hit a point where you felt like, okay, you could quit your job and go full-time into doing this. Right. Yeah. And I know for a lot of people, um, especially in our listener audience, I think people are trained so hard to like need to get a job throughout their, their entire lives. Right. Sure. That when it comes to a point where they start to see something that they're really actually really good at. Right. Um, yeah. And they're not just focused on stuff that they think they're good at for you. At what point did you realize, okay, cool, this is what I'm going to do. And what did it take for you to actually jump full force? Because that's a terrifying thought for a lot of people to just say, okay, I'm going to let go of all the security and, yeah. and go forth into that. Totally. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'm reminded of that quote by, I think it was Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson. If you can see the path before you, to your life's purpose, then it's probably not your path. <laughs> it's probably somebody else's path. If you can see it, right? Like if you can see the path, then somebody's already walked it. And the more that I do life, the more that I realize the path isn't clear because I'm creating the path. Like the role, the calling, the job, the thing that I'm gonna do hasn't yet been done before. So it should be scary and unknown and full of mystery because that's how I know it's mine and it's not Carl's or Paul's or whoever's. Um, so that that's kind of like thing one. How did I know? Um, first of all, I don't think you ever know. There's just this sense, right? Like there's just this sense of I'm stepping into the woods, right? I, I'm, I'm venturing out in this direction because I want to, because I'm curious about what's out there. I'm willing to explore and try and, and experience it. I don't know that it's gonna work. I think a lot of us are, um, you know, we're trained to be employees and a job is, is sort of this um, system where you kind of do the same thing every single day and get the same thing. You can get the same amount of money unless you're like in sales or in some high commission field. Like if I hire you out of college and I pay you, 50 or 100 grand or 200 grand. Um, at best, every year you're going to make a little bit more money. You're not going to like double and triple your income every year. You know what I'm saying? And, and so a job trains you to get locked into place and to just keep doing the same crap over and over again and basically get the same thing out of it. That's called, we, we call that security. Like that's also prison. Like it, you're, you're, you're contained. You know, like 
uh, and I don't have anything wrong with jobs. I employ people, right? Like they have jobs, but I, um, I, I'm, I'm not so scared of the unpredictability of it. Cause that sounds really exciting to me, but I think a job and growing, you know, like growing up in a world where you're kind of like told you got to go get a job. Not that you have, you can create your job. You've got to go get a job. Somebody's going to give you this thing. It's like, they have it, they give it to you and you just do it over and over again. And it trains you to expect success and success in, in the, the context of a job of a traditional employment is um, here's how it works. And it's not going to change that much. You do the same thing every day and we're going to pay you. And every year we're going to give you a little bit more. If, if you did a good job, like a few percentage points more. All that to say, Paul, I had this sense that this was where I wanted to go when a friend of mine asked me what my dream was and I was scared. I said, I don't, I don't know. I've got a job. Why do I need a dream? You know, all my friends who went off and, and chased their dreams all work at Starbucks now. They failed. And I'm not going to do that. Like I'd grown up, I'd grown up super lower middle class, never made more than $20,000 household income growing up. Um, I never felt poor, like we lived out in, in the country, but I didn't, I, I knew that if something was going to happen, I was going to have to make it happen. And, and so, you know, I go to college, I pay for it with scholarships and grants. I don't owe anybody anything. That's my whole goal is I don't want to owe anybody anything. I don't need to make a lot, but I'm not owning it. Nobody gets to control me. I'm not going to owe anybody anything. And I end up in this job working for this nonprofit. It's fine. It's good. And, and it's secure. And um. And then my friend asked me what my dream was. And I was like, I'm not going to be like all those other losers who chased their dreams and ended up, you know, worse than homeless. Like, I don't want, I'll stick with this. I was really scared to face my own dream. And my friend said to me, because he saw it before I could see it. He said, oh, I, I would have thought you would have said your dream was to be a writer. <laughs> and I said, what? What are you talking about? How do you know that? He goes, you talk about it all the time. You're doing it all the time. Like it's coming out of you. And so I do think that sometimes the people around us see things in us that we ourselves are afraid to acknowledge, right? Sometimes your calling, your vocation, your dream is like coming out of your skin. And, and sometimes you're afraid to admit it. I was. And I said, you know, I'd like to be a writer someday, but I don't think that'll ever happen. And he just looked at me and he said, Jeff, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. And so my answer to your question, Paul, is like, you know, it's the right thing when you already are it, when you're already doing it, you just don't have the freaking title, you know? And so for me, it was like, this is the thing that was coming out of me. It like wanted to be born. And there came a point where I had to own it. I had to, I had to go, yeah, this is me. And I've been running away from this and I'm tired of running. So I'm going to step into it and see what happens. Now, Jeff, there was an interview that you did. I want to say this is probably about seven or eight years ago at this point. Uh, wow. And it was with the, uh, the creative entrepreneur. Okay. And in that, in that interview, you said that you felt like the, your 20s or 20s can be looked at as like the period of struggling between adventure and commitment. Yeah. And so looking back in hindsight and seeing where you are now, if you could kind of go back to when you first decided to take that leap as an entrepreneur, if you could speak to like a younger Jeff, yeah, what would you do differently or what would be some advice that you would give? I would say, 
I would, uh, I would want me to go to therapy sooner is what I would want. Because I think that everything we do externally in our life is, is often a reflection of us trying to work out something internally. And I've heard it said that your external world is a reflection of your inner world, right? So uh, if my room is a mess, right? Uh, that's a reflection of internal messiness. It means I've got work to do. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just like you got work to do, you know? And so your external world is a reflection of your internal, internal world. And for me, my 20s were a series, and even my early 30s were a series of attempts to find validation through an identity. I am a writer. I am an entrepreneur. I am a success. And it never worked because there were parts of me that I was rejecting inside that I wasn't comfortable with that I'm working with now. I'm still, you know, still insecurities and things. Um, so I wish I could have heard it because somebody could have said it. I would have heard it, but I wish I could have heard early on in the process. There is nothing that you can do, no success, no failure um, that will define something inside of you that, that, that you have yet to resolve. Like there is no, there is no way to earn your way into acceptance, wholeness, whatever. I mean, all the cliches that we've heard, you know, Zig Ziglar used to say, uh, you know, every, everybody believes that money won't make you happy, but we all have to find out for ourselves. <laughs> you know, like we're all gonna go get rich and go, oh, oh, maybe happy. Uh, and there's a certain amount of truth to that. But um, I, I really did think that if I did something externally, it would validate something internally. And only recently have, have I learned that there are certain external successes I am incapable of reaching without first working it out internally, without first kind of figuring out me. There are amounts of money I can't make. There are amounts of happiness and creativity that I can't achieve until I actually settle in myself that I'm worthy of those things, that I'm capable of receiving money. Um, and that's, that's been a hard lesson to learn, to see me 10, 12 years later, repeating lessons that I didn't learn a decade ago. Because life teaches you the same lessons over and over again until you get them. I, I really love that um, for two reasons. One, I think, you know, for myself and, you know, maybe for Carl, something I had to, and something I'm currently even processing right now, mm. um, you know, just because I just recently moved to Florida and, you know, before we got on air, I was telling Carl, like, you know, it's, it's crazy because, you know, I have all these things now and I have this house yeah. and um, none of it is Tampa. Uh-huh. Um, you know, none of it really feels like that great without having my significant other there. Yeah. Right. It just feels like totally. just grabbing things, you know, left and right. Oh, okay. So I love yeah. that you, you know made point to that just because I think, especially, especially with that money identity, I think a lot of people have, um, where, you know, you said it best, like no amount of money is going to make you happy. Um, and we hear that over and over and over again. The question I want to ask you though, um, really then kind of deals with those newborn entrepreneurs because everybody goes into entrepreneurship. I want to have my own time. I want to make a lot of money. I want to do this. I want to do that. Right. Yeah. But, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs with that naiveness, which is a good thing and a not so good thing, I think people can very easily lose sense 
of how things need to be prioritized. So in your view, right, thinking back to when you first started as an entrepreneur, um, do you actually believe that a work life, I don't want to call it balance, but I'll call it that, a work-life balance can exist as a new entrepreneur? I think real, (laughs) I think every serious entrepreneur that I know that is doing it because they love it. They're in whatever it is. Like I know a guy who runs a call center and he loves it. Not because he actually like loves call centers, but because he just loves running a business. He loves being his own boss. Um, And I love that too. I, I love like not having a boss. I'd rather be like not as good at something if I'm the boss, you know, than like to be great at it and have somebody else tell me what to do. I'm just not, I'm not, I don't want that. I'm not wired for that. Um, every person I know doesn't talk about work-life balance. They don't care. Now, I think that when you start out, you're going to be really inefficient at something. So you're going to suck at managing your time. Like, it's like when I went to college and nobody teaches you that like college, you spend like a couple hours a day in class. And then the rest of the time, people are trying to get you drunk. You know, nobody tells you this or whatever, you know, like, um, and I found it so disorienting because I'd have like eight, 10, 12 hours a day to do whatever. And I'd get to the end of the day and I'm like, still like trying to like finish my homework or whatever. Cause I'm like hanging out with friends or taking a nap or whatever. Cause I wasn't used to that, but I got used to it pretty quickly. You know, it took me like a semester or so. And I was like, oh, I, I, I have to learn how to manage me. And I think that's what we're all trying to figure out. And, and so quitting a job and becoming uh, a business owner, an entrepreneur, working for yourself, um, depending on the kind of job that you have, is, is like a transition from, from like high school to college or college to your first job, where you go from people telling you what to do to not you have this greater level of uh, responsibility and this greater level of freedom. Um, so one, you're going to be inefficient because you've never done it before. Two, just try to learn that lesson as quickly as possible, right? So overwork yourself as quickly as possible. Don't try to pace yourself. Don't try to structure your time. Go crazy so that you can figure out what your limits are. Maybe you don't work a 40-hour work week. Maybe you work a 60-hour work week and you love it. Or maybe like your life only supports 25 hours of work per week and you've got to get really efficient at that. So go crazy, then figure out what your limits are and then build a schedule around that, understanding that every, you know, three to six months, you're going to change and grow and you're going to keep, you're going to keep hitting new limits and you're going to get better and better and more efficient. You're always going to want to try to test, test that and challenge yourself. Um, and the other thing I think that, that was helpful for me is to be present to the season that you're in, right? So I um, became an entrepreneur the same year I became a father, you know, and so I, I didn't do this like crazy 80 hour work week kind of thing. You know, I, I fit the work around my life. And then as my kids grew up, I realized I love this. I want to work more. I want to travel more. I want to do more things, create more things. When I have more time and energy to do it, I can make more stuff. I think we get into this like productivity porn, you know, thing where it's like, he's doing this and he's doing that and she's doing this. And we try to borrow somebody else's habits and you can't borrow somebody else's habits. If you don't have somebody else's life, 
right? And so I think it's helpful to find out what works for people. And then you figure out how do I fit this around my life? So you're going to be really bad at it. Try to learn that lesson as quickly as possible so that you can become efficient. I think it's great to burn out. I think it's wonderful to burn out because now you know how much fuel you have. And, and next time you don't have to burn out. You go, no, no, no. I need to go to bed now. But you don't know what your limits are. You don't know how much your rubber band can stretch until it breaks. And, you know, I don't want you to have like a nervous breakdown or whatever. But like, it's okay to have like a 90 hour week and be like, whoa, like I want to sleep eight hours a night. That's not a big deal. But I'm not here to tell you what your limits are. You've got to figure that out yourself and understand that at different seasons of life, we're going to have different levels of energy. You're going to have different priorities. Paul, you're talking about having a significant other. If you're single versus married, kids versus no kids. If you've got a partner or a roommate or somebody who has a job and they want to hang out. Um, I remember when I, when I first got married, um, you know, my, what, my wife would leave for work at seven o'clock. I worked from home. She'd leave at seven o'clock in the morning, come home at five o'clock in the afternoon. There were some days when she would come home where I would just be starting working. <laughs> it didn't take me too long to realize that doesn't work. Like if I want to spend time with her, I'm like, oh crap, I got up at noon. I had to watch my shows. I had to eat lunch at two o'clock, take a nap. Now I'm starting work, you know? And so like it has to work with your season of life. And, and you figure all that stuff out eventually, I think, unless you're an idiot. So don't be an idiot. I was for a while. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, I love it, man. I love it. You, you alluded uh, a few minutes ago to the, the notion of habits. Yeah. And so out of that, what I want to transition into is asking you, what would you say that your top three success habits have been? Again, I, I think this is silly and I think we get too obsessed with what other people do, but I'll answer the question because these are things that work for me and you got to find the stuff that works for you. Uh, I go for a walk at least every day, sometimes multiple times a day. I've, I've been on two walks today. Uh, it, it was, there was a snowstorm in Tennessee last week and now it's 70 degrees. So I'm like, awesome. I'm going for a walk. I love spring it's not it's you know it's not spring in february in february but it feels like spring um going for a walk has become a really important daily practice for me helps me think better helps me move my body sometimes i wake up i feel very anxious very nervous and i don't know if you guys have experienced this but, but for years i would wake up and i just start working and actually what i do now is i wake up i kind of look at my phone i check my schedule that gives me some peace i make sure there's no like crazy urgent things that need tackling. And these days it really isn't. Um, and then that gives me some peace to go spend an hour outside going for a walk. So I go for a walk every day. Um, and that's like my meditative, prayerful, transcendent, all the things kind of practice. That's the most organized it gets is I go for a walk. If I feel like I need to sit down and just kind of breathe. I'll do that. If I feel like I need to go for a run, I might do that. Sometimes it turns into a workout, but daily walk is, is an important practice. Um, another practice that's really important to me is I, I cook food. I cook my own food almost every day. Sometimes I'll go to like Chipotle or go out to dinner and meet a friend, but like uh, I cook food for myself, for my kids. Uh, sometimes I'll have somebody over for dinner. I love the creative act of uh, making something, sometimes spending two to three hours at night on a meal. 
Uh, I love that because it slows me down. It's the best health practice. There was a TED talk a while ago that said the best um, uh, diet that you can have is to just make your own food. You make your own food. You don't have to worry about what you're putting into it because it's just the process of slowing down and making your own food. Uh, I, I love food. I love cooking. And it's a really fun, creative act. It doesn't feel like work to me. And, and so in a way, it's a form of rest. Um, and uh, I learned, none of these are like productivity hacks, but they help me feel grounded. Um, I learned really early on when I started working for myself that it was lonely. And, and so uh, a few times a week, I would, I would ask a friend out to lunch because I would go weeks without seeing anybody, just staying in my apartment working. And um, nobody tells you this. Nobody tells you that like going to an office is a really great social environment, you know, and that once you start working for yourself, sure, you might make a lot of money and do whatever, 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 but you might be really lonely and bored and you just want to like hang and you start calling all your friends, you know, and, and they don't want to talk to you because they're working, you know, they're like, they've got real lives. I remember when I quit my job, I had a year's worth of savings. I'd done pretty well. I had a year's worth of savings in my bank account. So I didn't even have to go like do anything. So I just start calling my friends from college, offering them advice that they didn't ask for. Like, hey, don't you want to work for your, I was bored. I was just like trying to help people. And they're like, man, I gotta go. I only have a 20 minute lunch break or whatever. So my third practice is, uh, is I, 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 I meet with people. I'll have a friend come over for dinner. I'll, I'll meet somebody for coffee sometimes. Uh, I'll meet somebody at a park and we'll just go for a walk or whatever. Two, three times a week. I try to have intentional in-person time with people if we can make it happen uh, just because I want that social interaction. So walking, making my own food and, and like FaceTime with real people, uh, so important. And, and like, not like people that you have to be around, you know, like, like a friend, you know what I'm saying? Like I see my kids, but it's like, you need me. I want to be with somebody that, that um, it feels like an indulgence. It feels like if I don't schedule it, if we don't make it happen. It's not going to happen. Um, I can say that, that, that those three things um, have kept me more sane and more successful than all the other stuff, because meeting with people is a great networking tool. Like almost all of my success comes from people that I met. And that I didn't see them as a stepping stone. I just saw them as a friend that I tried to help. And eventually they became someone or, or whatever. And they helped me back or they in- introduced me to somebody. I heard somebody say once that they never work with friends. And my experience has been, I try to only work with friends. Or I try to turn the people that I work with into friends. Because, you know, friendship is so important to me. So meeting with people, you know, nourishing myself, exercising in a way that, is low impact. I can do it for a long period of time and I can think really well while I'm walking. Those three things have been so helpful to me. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you for that, Jeff. Yeah. Um, so we're going to, we're going to transition, but before we transition into our next question, we have a, a segment that we, we do, which is our black health segment, just to kind of bring awareness to some disparities and, and some issues that happen in the, in the black community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so today, what we have is peripheral arterial disease, PAD. 
And uh, for y'all just to know a little bit about that, that basically occurs whenever there's like extra cholesterol uh, or fats that are circulating in the blood and they basically get lodged into the walls of the arteries and kind of clog those. So with PAD, you can see uh, symptoms such as like intermittent claudification, which is kind of like some leg pain. Uh, you might have some coldness in your lower extremities and things like that as well. So uh, just for today's segment, guys, make sure that you're monitoring your cholesterol. Uh, make sure that you're paying attention to those those warning signs. And for any more questions as far as PAD, feel free to shoot me and Paul a text and uh, we'd love to get you guys some more information on that. So that's our Black, Black Health segment for today. Go ahead, Paul. Perfect. Um, so Jeff, I want to transition a little bit into the writing aspect okay. because I know a lot of people out there. Um, by the way, I'm not a lot of people because I can't write for Jack. Um, I promise you, I struggled. <laughs> I struggled. I hated writing yeah. um, just because it's not something that I'm proficient at. It's not one of my gifts, right? But uh, I want to start with just asking, you know, just a baseline question. What are some changes you've seen um, in the writing industry between today, now, and when you first started um, actually writing? Yeah, well, I mean, it's based like from a professional standpoint, I've been doing it about 10 years. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I will say on the publishing side, self-publishing still was kind of taboo. You know, it was like people, more people were doing it. Um, but it wasn't seen as like the best way to publish a book. Um, you wanted to have a traditional publisher. I did. And what's ironic is I published two books in the same year, uh, in 2012. And one was self-published and the other was traditionally published. And the self-published book did way better than the traditionally published book in terms of the amount of money it made. And yet I still continued to, to work with traditional publishers and lots of reasons for that. But part of it was, my ego, like uh, I wanted to be published, you know? Um, and I would say something that's significantly changed in the past 10 years is I've seen a lot of colleagues and peers uh, switch to uh, self-publishing or independent publishing. I think that is the opportunity to publish a really high quality book uh, exists in terms of self-publishing um, in ways that it didn't exist uh, 10 years ago. And um, you can self-publish a book that looks just as good, sometimes better than a traditionally published book. So I, I think that's a significant change. Uh, 10 years ago, blogging was really big. Now I would tell people don't start a blog unless you really want to. I would start a podcast. That's a much easier, better way to build an audience, I think. Uh, you know, like 10 years ago, it was like get on Facebook and, and you know, get on Twitter or something and, and have a blog. Now it's like be on Instagram and have a podcast. And what else has changed? I mean, I think there's a lot of clutter, you know, and 10 years ago, if you had a blog, um, that was like, oh, you have a blog, cool, I'll follow it. Now it's like, you have a blog, who cares, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of old hat, it's passe. And so, but it doesn't mean that we aren't still listening to people, we are. Um, but if I'm going to listen to you, you better have a remarkable message. I would say that's becoming the case with podcasts, too. Um, like you can't just have a podcast. You used to be able to just like have a podcast. Like this is my, this is my friend. We just have a conversation. It's cool. Now you've got to have like a structure, a theme, a big idea, something like it's got to be different. 
And, and so I think we're just seeing that a lot in, in the world of writing, podcasting, communicating, have a big idea. And, and the best way to have a big idea is to pick a fight. And, I, and, and before you go write a book, decide what your big idea is. Like, what is the thing that you're willing to fight over that you're willing to say, hey, everybody thinks this is true and I disagree with it. I think this, I think something else is true. If you can say that and, and like honestly believe it, you've got something worth saying. Um, but it's, it's no longer acceptable for you to just start talking without having some important message to share. And important is, is subjective. It just means you're saying something in a, in a new and unique way. Jeff, now, <laughs> I'm glad Paul asked that question, and I'm glad you answered it the way you did, because um, I think it's a very good segue in, into the next question I have for you, because you know, you have those people that they, they hear what you just said and they, they may think like, really? Like, like I, I thought I was supposed to start a blog. Like if I am someone who I do write, like I, I thought my first step was to start a blog, but you know, I could be podcasting. Okay. That's interesting. But how, as a writer, if I'm just starting off, like how can I position myself and how can I position my services to be able to start making some money from that and like what would you say are some different channels of monetization as well that uh writers should be looking at and and, and shouldn't uh turn a blind eye to sure yeah um i do think there is this idea that if you go out on the internet and you start making stuff you start a podcast or an instagram account or you start a blog or something that if you do it enough and you do it well enough, people start paying attention to you and then you can make money off of that. And there's like a switch that you flick that says like monetize and you go like click and now the money just starts coming in. And as you guys probably know, it doesn't work exactly that way. Or if it does, like that's kind of the like dumb luck way that it works. When we talk about monetization, what we're actually talking about is starting a business. A business as you guys know, is a solution to a problem people are willing to pay money for. So I know a lot of you want to monetize their content, but don't think that they're starting a business. That's not the best way to start a business, right? The best way to start a business is not to like go like sit on the corner and wait for people to like look at you and then go, hey, I, I want to sell you something. You know, the best way to, to start a business is to go, what's a problem that I know how to solve that I think people are willing to pay money for? And then how can I go find people it's called marketing, actually. How do I find people who are willing to pay money to solve this problem? And so as a, a, you know, a writer, uh, a speaker, anybody who can communicate naturally um, has an advantage because they're their own built-in marketing department. So when we talk about building audiences, all we're actually talking about doing is marketing the product before we try to sell it. And if you're smart, and I wasn't smart. I didn't do it this way. So I'm not saying you have to be smart, but if you're smart, you actually have a pretty good idea of what you're going to sell before you find the audience. And, and then you listen to the audience and then kind of figure out exactly how you, how you can sell it to them. So practically speaking, you want to go make money, figure out what's a problem that you can solve for people that they're willing to pay money for. How do you know they're willing to pay money for it? Because they're already paying money for it, right? So like if, if I want to make money as a realtor, how do I know I can make money doing that? Because people are buying houses through realtors, right? Like, so it's, it's happening. Um, all my friends are doing it. So it obviously works. 
So now I just need to go find people who want to buy houses. Um, and, and, and then you get to decide, well, how do I reach those people? Maybe a podcast is a good way to reach them. Maybe an Instagram account is a good way to reach them. Maybe I just go knocking on doors. If you're really interested in just like, whatever, quitting your job and making money, I wouldn't say just go start blogging or, or start podcasting or start an Instagram account. A lot of people are doing this. It might work. It often doesn't. Um, and it's a very inefficient way to start a business. A more efficient way is to find a problem, uh, try to solve it, see if one person will pay you money for it. And if one person will pay you money for it, you've got a business. Now your job is to find more people like that. And that's where content marketing, i.e. podcasting, blogging, article writing, email newsletter writing, social media, et cetera, becomes a viable uh, um, strategy because it's free. It's, it's relatively inexpensive slash practically free to have a conversation with your friend on Zoom or, or Skype, record it, and, and put it on iTunes. And, and if you know who you're trying to reach and what you're trying to sell, now it's just a question of getting in front of the right people. The best strategy across the board in the past 10 years that I've been doing this is to get in front of somebody else's audience, right? So for me, that means going on podcast interviews, going, yeah, cool. I'd love to get in front of your audience, talk about what I'm doing. If it res, I don't even have to sell anything, right? If it resonates with them, they'll come check out my podcast, my blog, whatever. They'll subscribe. Uh, and then over time, I can sell them things. And if you do that with enough people, it works. Um, and when I started out, it was guest posting. It was writing articles on other people's websites. Today, for a lot of people, I would say it's, you know, if you've got a podcast, you might interview a friend of yours who's a podcaster. They might interview you. You just find ways to get in front of other people's audiences. That's the best way to sell stuff and build your own audience. But the, um, the process of like, spending years and years trying to get in front of people and figure out what you want to sell them. It can work. It's very inefficient. If you can just cut to the front of the line and go, I've got a problem that I can solve. And now I know where those people are and I just need to get in front of them. You've got a business. I, I, I love that because I wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, um, we just dropped a video recently on our Instagram page talking about just focusing I'm trying to get that one thing and then going from there. Um, you know, I think doing too much can catch you. And what do the people say? Analysis, paralysis, you just deer in the headlights kind of moment. Um, that sucks. That's just terrible. Yeah, and like most people are like working a job and they don't have an abundance of time and they're doing the shotgun approach, which means they're like doing things not well and it's not working because they're not doing it well. The best thing to do is find somebody that did a thing that you want to do, right? This is what I did. I saw people who were becoming authors. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write books. And I was like, how do I do that? Well, I started a blog. All right, I'll start a blog. And then I noticed that these people have large audiences because they're, they're writing articles on other people's blogs. They're guest posting. And they're friends with all of these other influential people. So what did I do? I started meeting other influential. I wasn't influential. I started meeting influential people trying to like do a favor or something for them, not expecting anything in return, trusting that what goes around comes around. Uh, and then when the time came, I would say, hey, I have an article that I want to publish. You know, would you have any room for it on your blog? Or I have a book coming out. Would you be, you know, up for like an interview or something? You're just finding ways to contribute and add value. 
Um, but it really began with, with the network, with connecting with people who were doing the kind of work that I wanted to do and literally copying what they were doing. Oh, you're blogging? I guess I'll blog. And I'll do it my own, my own way. Like there's a lot of value to you kind of forging your own path, but pay attention to the people who have succeeded ahead of you and see what they've done. And if a lot of them have done a lot of the same things, then there's probably some principles there. There's probably some stuff that'll work there for you. You don't have to fly blind and you don't have to do a million things all at once to see what works. Exactly, exactly. That's a mic drop too, by the way. Um, here, let me ask you one question. Last one. Uh, what are three things that are on your entrepreneurial bucket list? Things I haven't done that are on my, my bucket list as an entrepreneur. I want to take my team. Uh, I had a large team. I kind of like brought it back down and then I've started building it up again in the past year. Um, I want to like take my team on like some killer trip, cruise, Disney World, private island, like celebrate a success together. Because for me, for 10 years, success was very personal. It was for me, for my family. It's very individual. And that was cool. It was fine. Then I got old. And I want to have a success that we like celebrate as a community. Like that feels really cool to me right now. Like it's, it's more about us than it is about me. I want to have multiple businesses that are run by other people. Like I want to own multiple businesses that I don't have to worry about. I have a friend who's a serial entrepreneur. He's got 30 businesses. He doesn't run any of them. He told me one business. He goes, it's the fifth year that I haven't paid myself because that's not what this business is about. That'll happen eventually. I mean, it's a different level of thinking. You know, I, I thought I'm going to start a business so I can make money and have freedom. He's going, I'm starting a business because I want to contribute to society and eventually, and the byproduct is eventually I'll make money. But I like the idea of like owning things that other people take care of for you. I love that. It's really, it's a different level. It's a different way of interacting. It's using business to improve society, which is what business is about. It's about rendering a service. You know, I don't want to go to a bakery. I don't care if the baker is interested in making money. Like I like from a capitalistic standpoint, that's going to keep him in business. And because he's interested in making money, he's going to try to please me. I get all that. But like, I want to go there because he serves good bread. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to go there because I got a need. I'm hungry. Um, slash just hankering for a pie or something. And um, him making money is not, is, is not what I care about. I care about me. And, and so the role of business is to contribute to society and culture in a positive way. So I, I want to get into that, you know, and, and, and get out of the, the me game. I mean, that's, that's cool for a while. That's fine. But it gets boring. Uh, third thing, third entrepreneurial bucket list. I think it'd be fun to have my kids work for me, with me for a little while. They don't have, they don't have to, it's not like a thing that they have to do, but, uh, you know, like as they get older, I'd love to take them on some trips and, and have them experience what I do. They've seen it. I want them to be a part of it. I want them to have a job. I want them to work for dad for a minute. I think that'd be fun. Jeff, let me ask you, who would you say uh, right now is on your Mount Rushmore of writers? Or authors, either. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I like, my go-to is Hemingway because he represents this like 
I don't know, freewheeling kind of bold lifestyle that, that I aspire to. And at the same time, he represents all kinds of unhealthy habits that serve as like warning signs to me, you know? Um, so I, I both see myself in him and also kind of like see the, the danger of, I don't know, not, not working on your stuff. So, you know, Hemingway would be one for sure. I love Anne Lamott. She's a great, more modern writer and uh, she's a great writer. I respect her writing so much. And then I really like, there's a poet that I follow, David White, um, who writes poems and somehow gets companies like Boeing to, to pay him tens of thousands of dollars to come in and read a poem to them and tell them what it means. And, and what I think is cool about that is he didn't have to sell out to do what he wanted to do, to, but he still gets paid well, you know? And um, I love that because I have this belief or I've had this belief that like, in order for me to do what I do, um, I've either got to, I've either got to starve or I've got to sell out. Like I've got to not do it the way that I want to do it so that you like it, or I have to maintain my integrity but I'm going to go broke and starve doing it because nobody wants it. And it challenges my assumption that I can't do exactly what I want to do and, and people will want it from me. And I love that. I want to lean into that. I don't want to believe that. Awesome. I love those, by the way, um, especially the one about having a lot of people run businesses for you. That's that you're speaking my language. Um, you're speaking my language. It's fun. It scares me too. Cause it, cause it means giving up control. Yeah, no, that's that's the big thing, especially for personal. I think I can already tell, like, we might have a similar personality type. That's one of my big struggles. I, I genuinely dislike when other people are doing stuff that we're working on simply because I'm like, it's so hard to let you lead. Like, but what I'm learning is like, if I don't let you do that, I can't go start more things. And I want to start more things, you know, I want to create more things. And so I'm learning to let go of it a little bit because it gives me the opportunity to go create more, but it's hard. Let me uh, ask you one more question. I lied. I do have one more. Um, but really, I want to know uh, when it comes to your marketing, right? Um, what are some unique methods that you utilize to be able to get the attention of your target market? Wait, wait. Before you, before you answer that, Jeff, I know that, <laughs> I know that you, you, you like to use email marketing. Uh -huh. But I kind of want to ask as well, kind of packaged on top of what Paul asked in terms of email marketing. And the reason the reason I'm, I'm wondering this is because there's been a lot of conversation, I feel like lately about, oh, email marketing is going to be obsolete. Text is the future. Uh, and yeah. so I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that as well as in being able to pivot. And if you think email marketing is still something, you know, years down the road that will be effective? So email marketing is um, the oldest digital technology still in use today. Email marketing is older. Email is older as a medium than the internet. It existed before what we call the World Wide Web, the, the connection of, of um, networks. <clears throat> so typically when something is very old, it keeps going for a long time. It has a staying power. We've been publishing books for about 500 years. People have been talking about the end of books for a long time. It's not going to happen for a long time. It may happen. You know, we might start communicating through thought, but it's going to, 
It takes a long time for a big ship to change direction. It takes a long time usually for a big ship to sink, depending on how big the hole is. Um, so things that have been around for a long time are going to stay around for a long time, typically, not always, but that's often the case. If something has succeeded for a long time, there's a long tail, that success will likely continue. Uh, whereas if something has only had a quick amount of success, the likelihood that it's going to endure is low. You don't know. It's just unknown. So, you know, text marketing is, is uh, even like, um, uh, like uh, Facebook Messenger tends to have high open rates, high conversion rates. That's great. I would highly recommend utilizing stuff that's working well. Uh, I would be careful putting all my eggs in a, in a new basket. Uh, so from just a probability standpoint, the likelihood that email marketing is going to become obsolete anytime soon is low. Um, is, do, do people tend to experience diminishing returns with an email list? Over time, yes. However, what I've experienced is a lot of that has to do with how many new leads you have coming in. I think it doesn't matter the channel as long as you own the contact meaning you've got the phone number, you've got the email address, you've got the whatever. And ideally, you've got as many touch points with a, with a customer or prospect as possible. And you're hitting them from as many different angles as, as possible. That's ideal. So you've got to own your list, whatever the list is, emails, phone numbers, whatever. You've got to own it. You've got to have access to your people whenever you want to have access to them. Because if I've got to go ask permission to communicate with my target market, I'm giving somebody else control. And I love Facebook marketing, Instagram marketing. These are, these are powerful pay-per-click and pay-per-impression tools. Uh, but I don't own the audience. And that's very risky. Over time, you want to be building what Seth Godin calls a permission asset, a, a list of people that have given you permission to communicate with them that over time gets larger and larger, a customer list, a database, whatever you want to call it. So uh, the number one most important aspect of marketing is lead flow. That's the most important thing. Not how big your list is, but how many new leads you're getting in on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Most important thing. People are most excited to buy from you when they first get in contact with you. This is one of the worst things that you can do is wait to sell somebody something. Imagine walking into a department store or start the mall or whatever. And first of all, you know, somebody asks you, you know, can I help you with anything? You're, no, I'm just looking. That person wants to buy something. The best thing that you can do when somebody walks into your store is try to sell them something without like scaring them away. Try to sell them something small, something easy that gets them wanting to come back. The worst thing you could do is say that there's nothing for sale. You just can look, right? That'd be crazy. A lot of people do this with their email lists and, and you know, whatnot. Um, so what do I think about email marketing? I think a lot of it has to do with lead flow. Um, people have been saying email marketing, since I've been doing email marketing, people have been saying it's dying. Uh, that's not been my experience. What has been my experience is, is that as your list stagnates, your conversion rates go down. And But if you're consistently generating new leads, like I think a really good flow is like uh, Facebook and Instagram marketing into an email, into like a free webinar or download or something. Get the email so you can continue to communicate with them. If you can get their phone number, great, get it. You know, if you can get their social security number, great. Let it, get whatever information you can. Email is great because we're used to giving our email away. We're not as used to giving away our phone numbers. Uh, if, if you can text people, I think that's a great ancillary thing. But it's all, everybody has an email address. And so it's just a really easy thing to do. So I'm still a fan of email marketing as a hub. And then I like 
PPC, um, you know, as, as sort of a easy leap flow. I pay money, I get a lead. If I can, if I can get my return on my ad spend, I can do that all day long while growing my audience and then selling my audience stuff over whatever period of time I want. To answer your question, Paul, um, my marketing hack is vulnerability, transparency. The more I open up to my audience, um, the more they respond. And I, I wish, I, I, I wanna say like, when we did this, we made this much money. And I, I honestly, I think Paul, for me, it's just like, uh, every time I go to a place that I'm a little bit scared to go to, even though like I'm like helping people solve practical problems when I share stuff about me personally, and this may be because I'm an author and my audience sees the things that I've done and in some ways wants to replicate those things in their own life. Uh, but, but, you know, you guys are personalities as well. I'm sure you, you know, there's a certain amount of that as well. And so when I show them not just the successes, but the failures and the hard things um, that humanizes it. And, it, and it, like empathy means that you're like feeling with the person, right? And, and so I think in order for me to trust you, I got to feel you, right? There's a lot of authors and thought leaders out there. I, I remember a friend telling me uh, this about a thought leader. And he said, I hear you, but I don't feel you. And I felt that, you know what I'm saying? Like th there's certain people that we trust because they could be lying, but for whatever reason, we just believe they're not. We feel them, we feel what they're feeling. And so that's my quote unquote superpower, just empathy, like just share, not everything, but sharing some things that um, I don't have to share. And, and vulnerability is kind of showing you where you could wound me and then trusting that you won't. And when I do that, you go, well, this guy's trustworthy because he just showed me where I could hurt him. And, and, and in some ways it has this kind of reciprocal effect. Well, if he's going to show me where I can hurt him, he's probably not going to take advantage of me. He's probably not going to hurt me because he just showed me how, how I could hurt him. Does that make sense? Vulnerability is actually sharing a, 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 a place in you that people could take advantage of that they could hurt. And so when you do that, people trust you and trust is the game, period. It is the game of business. There's nothing else to do, but earn and keep a person's trust. You do that. There's no limit to what you can do. I love that. I love that. And speaking of trust to the listeners, listen, I need y'all to trust how dope these shirts are. Let's talk about it real quick. I'll keep it short. You know what to do. Text word shirt. 321-384-6275. I had the white one on. I just wanted to feel amazing today. Carl has a black. We have the gray. You guys already know the spiel. I'm not going to bore y'all with it. But what you need to understand is that that whole customization thing, at one day, I promise y'all, I will wake up and I will decide we're not making any more custom shirts. So before that happens, text us the word shirt to 321-384-6275 to get yours. Really excited to see y'all repping OTC. Appreciate that, Paul. Man, Jeff, this is going to go down as one of our legendary episodes right here. So uh, greatly appreciate you, man, and all the gems that you dropped. I definitely will look forward to going back and, and re-listening to this episode as well. And, uh, you know, we don't take it lightly that you donated your time to us today. So seriously, from you know, us and from our extended OTC family. Thank you. Greatly appreciate you. Before we let you go, 
for anyone who, you know, this may be their first time being exposed to you, what would be some uh, social media or contact information that you would want to leave with them? Yeah, uh, you can always go to my website where I write and publish new material every week and sign up for my email list at goingswriter.com. Lots of free resources, especially for writers and creatives. Uh, that's G-O-I-N-S writer.com. If you want to connect directly with me, I'm very active on Instagram. You can shoot me a DM. I read and respond to all of those. That's at Jeff Goins, J-E-F-F-G-O-I-N-S. And you can Google my name and find all my books um, wherever fine books are sold. Appreciate that, Jeff. To our lovely listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you're on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the very bottom of our page. Hit that five-star review write a five-star review for us. You guys always text us and, and send us messages. And guys, please, it would be so much better if you leave all that love on the Apple podcast store so other people know how much value we're bringing with this podcast. So um, until next time, guys, we appreciate you. Peace. Many blessings. Thank you for listening to another episode of Off the Clock. Don't be shy to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. See you next episode.